I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. today with Herman Montoja, who's the uh, co-founder of Rocker Labs and also the chief strategy officer, right? That's right. <laughs> yes. And, and it, it's great to meet. You know, we, we actually connected with one of your other uh, founders, uh, Nabil, uh, who uh, we were actually speaking together in Ecuador, mm-hmm. all places. Uh, but I'm, I'm here today actually in, in, the, in the offices of Rocker Labs. Uh, and uh, it seems like this is really ground zero for the Miami uh, innovation startup scene. Yes, thank you. Yes. Uh um, Nabil and I started Rocket Labs uh, almost four years ago uh, with really the idea of bringing to Miami the ability to create companies in a, in a world that we thought was ready and ripe for, for strong innovation, regardless of where we stayed. So Miami, it's a beautiful place. <laughs> uh, it's uh, not the first place that really comes to mind when you think about startups, though. Uh, uh, is it the first place for a lot of people to go and live at? So maybe, right? A lot of people say, hey, I'd love to live in Miami. And in today's world, why is one divorced from the other? Uh, and that's one of the first insights we had. It's like, hey, let's be living in a great place, but also play in a global scale, thanks to a smaller world that is more connected. Traditionally, Florida has been more end of life <laughs> residency rather than start of life company. So, so when you guys started to build the ecosystem here, uh, what were some of the things you looked for uh, in order to really kickstart the process yeah it's uh, it's a it's a, a great point right that when you talk about um, a thriving technological ecosystem you kind of look at um, the the leaders the feeders you talk about universities uh, the government talent access to capital and in many ways Miami had none of those right <laughs> uh, so we thought hey great this is a perfect opportunity uh, we could start it, we could, or, or at least be part of the groups that started, right? Uh, we, what we did have was a great place to live, right? Mm. Uh, so we thought it would be easy to attract all of the others, right? Uh, Miami, as you may know, it's a young city, it's a 120-year-old city. It has been very kind of, uh, goes ups and, and downs in every economic downturn, even more than the rest of the country. And that was always uh, kind of the fear. It's like, even if we start, can we sustain? Mm. Can we sustain this? We know that this is a 15 to 20 year old uh, fight to, cry, to try to create an, a real uh, technological ecosystem in Miami. But we said, okay, let's start it. It has unique advantages. It has a unique position, right? It was very clear that Miami in today's world was a gateway to the rest of the US, to Latin America and even to, to Europe and Russia, right? It's a, a lot of people coming in here. Miami might be anything else. It could have been uh, uh, the place to retire. It could be the place to have vacations, but it was also the place where all these people were coming to. And there were people with wealth, yeah. right? Either they, they probably didn't produce it in Miami, but they were spending it a lot in Miami or spending a lot of time. So we thought, hey, we have the potential to access wealth, right? We have beaches to attract talent, right? We have connections to the rest of the US, to Latin America and to Europe. Uh, And particularly, we thought we could create an initial team 
that could kind of ignite all of those other uh, aspects of, of company building. Very quickly, uh, the Knight Foundation, who had traditionally been investing in art, really got into the technological scene. Uh, we had early uh, uh, successes like uh, Cloud Care or Open English, and more recently, huge success through Magic Leap. So we started to have some. You, you were involved in Magic Leap? No, no, not involved. It's a Miami story. Oh, they're so right here. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in Delray Beach. So, so do you actually know what they're building? Well, nobody knows. <laughs> when you talk to them, they beat around the bush. Uh, we have our theories. We, we think they're going to project images to your eyes, but I don't know from where. Huh. But it's, a, it's definitely a, a good, at least, valuation story, right? Um, and there were groups, even before we were here, that were starting to have startup meetings. Um, uh, a lot of Latin Americans were already coming to Miami to try to get to the rest of the US, to try to appeal to a bigger market. Um, plus, we, were, we had chosen to live here personally, mm. right? Uh, it's, uh, so you realize, said, though, that you have to fight with LA over the label Silicon Beach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a, a name that uh, some people tried to to implement here in in Miami for a while, but it was a different type of silicon at that point. <laughs> you might you might have been like with silicon plier. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, I think that our position today is really strongly around being a gateway. The the reference you made to Latin America, I think, is really important because th this is actually your background as well. You, you're from Colombia originally, right? Yes, I was born in Colombia. Um, um, a few decades ago, um, I lived there until I was 16. Hmm. Um, Colombia, for anybody that knows a little bit of Colombia, uh, during the 90s was in a big internal war. The government, the guerrilla, the paramilitaries, and the drug dealers were uh, at a rampage. And uh, unfortunately, uh, my, my family was a little bit in the middle of it. Um, as Pablo Escobar had been uh, 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 captured, they were negotiating extradition treaties right. so that Pablo could stay, uh, could could should not be tried outside of the Colombian state because he would have a much better time within Colombia. You, your grandfather and father were both heavily involved in politics, is that right? Yes, mostly my grandfather. My grandfather had been a, a corporate guy forever, but he had joined the government within trying to take it to the next level. And in the middle of that, the war between the drug dealers and the government was stated, uh, and that had ramifications uh, because the drug dealers who had become very, very uh, weaponized hmm. uh, started using uh, kidnapping, not as a source of income, but as a source of, of, of influence to change policy. So my grandfather was kidnapped, we had to leave the country, um, and uh, some things that are narrated by Garcia Marquez is one of, one of his uh, kidnapping books. Wow. Uh, you know, if Garcia Marquez is, is writing about your family, then it's probably time to leave town, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you become such a good story, it's probably time to leave town. Yeah. But it's extraordinary, though. Cause I was I was back in uh, Colombia, you know, not so long ago, and it's it's it, not only is it a different city, but it's become in its own way a a thriving ecosystem of new ideas. Mm. Colombia, uh, even though it has had so much political unrest and so much war, it's an old democracy for Latin America. It barely had any dictators. Uh, it has an economic uh, potential due to its own wealth and natural resources, but also because of its people. And in the last 15, 20 years, it has completely changed around. Uh, we're in the verge of signing peace with every uh, guerrilla uh, uh, group. 
and it's promising, right? And I think it's like Miami in a way, really taking advantage of a much more connected world, right? It's yeah. also in a very geographically uh, primed location. It's in the middle of everything. But, but do, you, do you see different kinds of innovation in, in Latin America and places like Colombia? I mean, do they, do they think about problems differently? I definitely believe so, right? Uh, when you talk about entrepreneurship and, and innovation, which is what we do in Miami, which in many ways is considered kind of the capital of Latin America, uh, you think of what we call first world problems, right? Right. Uh, in, in Latin America, my partner, uh, Nabil, who was born in Africa, we face different problems. And as you face different problems, you come up with different solutions. And I think that's the new world, right? It's, uh, it's very hard for me to not feel that the problem in Syria is not my problem, right? Before, when we were growing up, it's like, okay, those are Venezuela's problems or the U.S. problems, but now it's a... There's a big, big understanding that these are all our problems. Uh, so uh, those insights in local villages in underdeveloped worlds can come up with incredible solutions that before were not even taken into account. What are some examples? What are some things that you've seen in Colombia of, I guess, different 21st century innovation? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, for example, even talking about kidnappings and violence in, in Colombia for a while, it became very popular for criminals to to kidnap people for a couple of hours, right? They these the, are the express kidnappings, right? Express <laughs> kidnappings, or they call them millionaire ride. So they'll <laughs> kidnap you, take you to ATM machines, try to draw as much money as you could from every ATM machine, and then just uh, leave you uh, in the nude in the middle of the city. Uh, so, so th this does not happen in San Francisco. In San Francisco, you may be much more worried about... Uh, getting organic lettuce delivered to your doorstep. Yes. Uh, but in Colombia, this happens. So the local insurance companies came up with local uh, solutions. So today, if you go to, into a taxi cab, uh, you could do it through an app or through a messaging application, basically uh, uh, send the, the plate of the, of the taxi and the identification number of the driver, and you'll get a quote for a, uh, insurance that would insure you for the length of the ride. So, so there's actually ride-based insurance. Exactly. So well, talking about micropayments, right. micro-insurance, uh, and this this uh, little invention in Colombia, if you think about it, has incredible implications worldwide. Because how do you pay for it? Is it it's just deducted off your phone bill? It's just deducted off your phone bill. Right. So they've done essentially what Uber has done and, and eliminated the friction around payment. Exactly, and then if you think about it, you could insure any, anything, right? Yeah. At very low quantities, every time you feel you're having a risk, not only in Colombia, but by climbing a dangerous mountain yeah. or any, any other thing from your phone. And what's extraordinary about that is that it would be very difficult to take out a generalized insurance against kidnapping uh, because it would create a moral hazard. Yeah. But in this case, because they're linking it to a specific plate number and a driver, they're actually reducing the chance of that driver also kidnapping you. Exactly, exactly. Mm. exactly. Uh, the, the incentive has completely shifted. Do you think because of this different perspective that you don't really come up with these ideas unless you're faced with these problems, that at some point Silicon Valley and Palo Alto is going to reach some challenges around globalizing um, some of their ideas into some of these new markets? Yeah, and, and in another way, right? If you really think of how many people work at Google, at Facebook, at every big name, every startup that has made it in Palo Alto, you barely get to 500,000 people, right? Yeah, I think Google has 6,000 employees or 60,000. 
Uh, and then you realize that the rest of the world today, we have 1.5 billion people connected. In the next five or six years, we'll have 7 billion. How many times can we replicate Palo Alto around the world to face new, new problems, right? So either we create uh, wider tentacles that, that start at uh, Palo Alto, or we create different uh, hubs across the world that have their own um, uh, pro um, problems and solutions to those problems. Hmm. And this is part of your vision with Rocker Labs, right? Definitely. This is, this is something that we uh, believe heavily on, right? We, we, we started as, a, as a, almost like a technological uh, co-founder to certain, to certain types of entrepreneurs that didn't have that knowledge or acumen. But today we are completely uh, driven by a, by a, a global marketplace, not only in terms of purchasing power, but in terms of accessing talent, accessing problems at a global scale, uh, and also really harnessing the new technologies that will make that talent invent, innovate, and create businesses in a much faster way and in a much more efficient way. To really innovate at global scale means you also have to scale up your own processes. And just like consulting, traditional venture capital is to some extent limited by scale. I mean, there's only so many companies you can invest in or, or start a year. Uh, have you had some thoughts about how you would, I guess, accelerate that process? Yeah, I think that, that, that you touch on exactly that point. Like if you have a VC or if you have any type of uh, process of company building, it's all about kind of saying, what am I not doing? What am I focusing on, right? Right. But when you have this connected marketplace, you can really play kind of the numbers, right? So, so uh, we have grown uh, from five people to about a hundred people in three years. But our growth potential is always uh, a function of area, of, of how much salary can we pay talent, uh, how much ta how much money can we raise to create a new company. Uh, but the promise of the new world does not have those limitations. Hmm. So imagine a platform that would allow you to input ideas and quickly get them validated uh, by experts at the functional level. You can quickly uh, see if there is a potential product market fit. Uh, you can accompany these companies step by step while they experiment, hmm. and you allow them to be funded not only by investors but also by the people, so you can have pre-IPO ideas. How's this different? To, how's this different to Kickstarter? Kickstarter, in many ways, uh, well, this is in many ways similar, right? We're going on the same trend, but Kickstarter has been used to to deploy apps, but mostly to to kind of have collaborators for you to achieve your own dreams, right? Right. What we're trying to do is, hey, let's try to solve bigger problems as a as a community, as a world community that raises the bar of problems, right? So I can go to Kickstarter to perhaps play my guitar across the West Coast, right? <laughs> you can go to Rocket Labs and say, hey, I have a better way to condense water to take it to other people. Yeah. Uh, Kickstarter up to now, and I hopefully that, that changes, has never given, given equity to its collaborators, right? They have just have a best price for the products, right? Yeah. What if you could have, uh, uh, even if you were born in the middle of Africa or Brazil, a little percentage of the next IBM, Google, or Apple, right? Yeah. Because because you were offered it. People are a bit sick about hearing some company that started on Kickstarter and all they got was a lousy T-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> which is probably what they were selling. <laughs> <laughs>
yeah, yeah. But when you look at the venture capital or the company initiation process, what are the, I guess, the processes that are suboptimal now? What are the things that need to have more efficiency built into them? Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, uh, in today's world, because we're so so connected and so knowledgeable about what's going on, we feel that it's a lot of of of, of innovation. But if you look at the numbers. Uh, the number of companies being created is perhaps less than 34 years ago. Now, really? Yes. Uh, what's different though is that the companies that are being created are much more disrupted. And I would say that to clarify, right? Like before you would open a little shop. Well, we cannot do that against Walmart anymore, right? right? So those type of entrepreneurial ventures have, low, have highly decreased because of all of those fragmented markets have been concentrated by bigger corporations. Now, for the first time, uh, you don't need to be a large corporation or a big country to spend on innovation and have real insights. You, could, you have the same access if you're in Africa or anywhere or in Latin America or in Colombia to the same Google or to the same uh, iTunes Stanford classes given by the best schools yeah. anywhere, right? Or so even on the infrastructure side, uh, Amazon Web Services. Amazon Web Services, and you can also go to, to your local 3D printer shop and even prototype by yourself. Before you would have to hire a product, an engineer prototype yourself. So all of those barriers have really uh, been reduced. But if but if you look at even the disrupt the, the more innovative entrepreneurial efforts, they're still suboptimal, right? In many cases, it takes too much time to get to the next level of funding. In Miami, for example, we have a, a clear example of a company that took that spent one million to raise two. 12 months to, <laughs> to live another 12, uh, it's suboptimal, right? Yeah. There's a lot of loss when you don't have the right team around you, especially the co-founding team, and that's not only a matter of complementing skills or capabilities, it's also complementing or sharing the same vision. So you could have the best developer, but if he wants to do one thing and your lead architect wants to do another thing, that's not optimal. That, that in today's world, could be a function of an algorithm, right? I could clearly state, say, hey, these are my skills, this is what I want to do in the world. And you could find your uh, soulmate, your, your co-founder soulmate in the other part of the world and still be a much better match than, than to just hire the web developer that you knew when you were uh, in high school. Right? So, so are algorithms a big part of your vision for the scaled up version of what you're yeah. doing now? I think that in, in, in a ways, let's look at every reason why a startup fails. It's been uh, highly documented not enough or too late product market fit, you're too early or too late to the market, uh, you cannot get enough funding, you don't have the right team, and all of those functions can clearly be optimized by use of algorithms, much more data, better correlations, uh, and, and that problem, uh, according to our own uh, analysis, those uh, suboptimal uh, processes uh, cost us about 500 billion to one trillion dollars per year. Hmm. If any type of efficiency, if you apply a 10% efficiency, and if you apply an exponential efficiency, uh, that those th that's a good business. And if you don't only think that you could cure all of those inefficiencies, but actually use that cost as an opportunity cost to invest, uh, uh, because you can you can. Um, iterate much faster or churn ideas much faster, then you're not only saving money but creating a lot more wealth through solving better problems or bigger problems. Have there been some examples where you've used algorithms to date to optimize some of your own processes? 
Yeah, and I think that um, that you're gonna. Uh, so we have a few a few companies within our portfolio today. We have thirty companies, and all of them have a strong big data algorithmic base, right? I think that even though there are many exponential technologies like 3D printing, nanotechnology, um, uh, robotics, and on, a big common denominator is gonna be software. Mm -hmm. uh, it's gonna provide the intersection of these technologies to go further. Uh, so for example, in, a, in our portfolio, we, we are um, we're just launching a company um, that, has, that has been able to um, geofence areas, look at whatever social clutter happens within that geofenced area, um, understand that clutter, and provide the, uh, and I guess the best example is imagine a hotel, right? So I could geofence a hotel, listen to everything that is being said within that hotel, understand that whoever posted a picture of a specific meal, uh, really um, liking it, uh, and that person has 100,000 followers, I can then, as a bartender, get a little notification uh, that says, hey, this guy is really happy about it. It would be a good idea to, to, to invest in that relationship. In so real time. In real time, right then, right? And this is a, it's a, a, a basic idea to make it happen in real time to the right person is a function of algorithms, right? Yeah. Uh, if then I can take this to another level, right? And I know that this person continually comes, uh, I can start predicting his behavior or her behavior, right? So I could, instead of waiting for him to post, I could already have his fish there, right? Or have the, 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 the type of experience that that person might, might expect, uh, um, really changing the experience of that person coming to my hotel. And hotels really need help uh, because now they're selling experiences versus rooms, thanks to Airbnb's uh, complete takeover of the <laughs> of the more functional need. Uh, so it's an interesting pro uh, proposition, right? Uh, that company is called Hyper. It's uh, they just went through the Disney uh, accelerator, mm. uh, and, and and we think that it's an interesting, uh, really interesting, important solution. There are multiple listening platforms out there. Very few let you act on what you're listening in the right moment uh, uh, or in real time. Given the importance of algorithmic type solutions to problems today, is this, do you need to have a background in, in analytics uh, or is this more of a mindset? Like I know yourself that you, you spent many years at uh, McKinsey and Accenture working on optimization problems and your co-founder, uh, Nabil, uh, <laughs> well he's got a maths background. Yeah. Uh, Although I thought it was funny, you know, when we spoke in Ecuador and someone was describing their favorite speeches, what was the story? They said that their two favorite speakers was the math genius from Kenya yeah. <laughs> and the magician from the future. Yeah. Which turns out to be me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, what, what, is, what, is, what is the kind of the skill to be able to think algorithmically? Well, I, I, in, in a way, uh, an economist is uh, not such a smart uh, mathematician, but we understand kind of the rule of the big numbers, right? Right. Uh, there's clearly uh, there is clearly wisdom in big numbers, right? Uh, and I guess that's one of the reasons why Nabil and I uh, quickly kind of share the same vision. But are you looking for entrepreneurs that have an economics background, or is it something else that you're? No, I think I think that interesting isn't interestingly, though that's been kind of the the, the norm is like let's look for entrepreneurs that have specific skill sets or personalities or or things into in in our view. 
it's really a combination of that and how big the problem is, right? Uh, uh, to us, much more, uh, a little bit different from Palo Alto, we believe that every problem could probably be hacked and it's a matter of persistence and talent and persistence versus choosing the right kid or, or leader, right? Right, so you think Palo Alto is more driven by talent? It's completely driven and I think it's a great strategy, yeah. right? I think that that is an alternative. Our alternative is to look at problems and just go and try to solve them, right? right. And and uh, uh, in Palo Alto, you might be you might argue that it's driven by individual talent. We argue that whatever the problem is, the collaboration of genius could solve that 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 problem, anyways, or even in a better way or in a more compelling way because you already have the crowd with you. Hmm. Uh, uh, but going back to your first question, I think that uh, the skill level to understand the, the technology today, right? So when I was growing up, the data warehouse architect was the genius, right? <laughs> they had to pre-think how the best architecture of a, da- of, a, of, a, of a data warehouse had to be to take the most out of it. That has completely changed, and this is not something that I know uh, because I studied it because somebody told me. Today, the real intelligence is in the query. Today, you just dump data into a very intelligent kind of database, and it by itself, thanks to algorithms, to machine learning, to a lot of data, starts finding common denominators. So while before you had to kind of say, this is the common denominator, in today's world, you can let the computer find common denominators. Hmm. And that's a potent uh, concept, right? You, you originally have an economics background, uh, and I guess the core of traditional 20th century economics was scarcity. Do you still see that, I mean, now people, I mean, it's fashionable to talk about abundance and, and they're in a world where there, there is no more scarcity. Do you really see that these, these algorithms, which are so important now to the future of innovation disruption, are what's driving abundance or is it a bit of an illusion? Well, uh, you, you said it right, uh, most economics and uh, uh, it's really try to understand how to make the most out of limited resources, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of the standing hypothesis that resources are limited, that the universe is limited, that you can have, you cannot have... Uh, you have uh, so much energy, so much oil, so much talent. Yeah, and that's how to best use it, yeah. right? Uh, I think that that's been uh, rethought, right? In, uh, like even today, uh, you could have a full real world, but you can also have an even more interesting virtual world, right? So then the resources in that virtual world in, in your mind are very unlimited, right? But but I think that that a better kind of way to, to at least not be so driven by words is that the level of optimization is huge, right? When you can go, when you can go from, from being as a human, being able to, uh, they say that in the Middle Ages uh, or, or into today, in a week, you consume more information that a human would have done in all of his life during the Middle Ages, right? Yes. Uh, then it's a different magnitude, yes. right? Well, but that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily make you smarter. It just means that you need more information to live on a daily basis. Or that you, you have more information, right? right. So, so the problem is different. Yeah. Before, before, before it's like, how do I get more information to this? How do I make sense of the information, hmm. right? And that's when it's interesting that you have algorithms, you have correlations that kind of drive interesting insights of uh, data that you thought was not related. So when you can start trying to make sense of chaos, of entropy, because... You can, because a computer can learn, dissect information that is relevant, that is irrelevant, a lot of information, then you move into a different type of problematic. Mm -hmm. 
it's not that the world is now abundant and, and before it was scarce, it's that now you look at the world in a, with a different lens. So it's really about optimization. In a way, but it's an optimization that you don't go from, from costing 10 to 1, you're costing 10 to 0.00001. It's a, <laughs> it's a, I don't know if you, if you see what I'm saying, but it's an optimization that, could, that it's X levels of magnet. Just to come full circle, when, when you look really at the places that you came from, uh, Latin America and, and a lot of this the emerging world, do you think some of this thinking and approaches can also improve daily life in those places? I definitely believe so, right? Because uh, uh, economics used to be the tool of, uh, of, economic de- of, of social development. Yeah, and, and I think that microeconomics, this type of signaling through, through interest rates or, or subsidies and their own, it's not really working. Yeah, well, you can see what the Federal Reserve are trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a joke, but... But when you see, like, in my own experience, and even I would say it too, right, uh, when you had a big dream, a big idea, and you were not born in the right place, you were the first one to kill it. You didn't even have to ask an investor to kill it for you. You're like, hey, this is never going to happen. When you see that uh, uh, one of the biggest innovations at this point is by an Argentinian putting shoe size uh, satellites up in orbit in a mesh network, right? Then you say, hey, these things are possible, right? This innovation can come from anywhere. When you see that, uh, that uh, desalinization solutions are coming from the Middle East, which in many ways had never been thought as a very uh, innovative place, uh, uh, where you see uh, small towns in Africa, um, 20x in their economic GDP in two years after not changing for 300, then you start realizing that these solutions are, are coming from every part of the world, right? When you see that uh, mobile payments are not originated in, by Square in Palo Alto, but are originated in Philippines 15 years ago, then you start seeing that, that we are in a smaller world, that everybody can participate, and that everybody can use each other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, might thought, you might have thought that if you were a chemist in Lithuania, your best job would always be within the university or in a lab, and suddenly you can be matched with an entrepreneur in Boston. Herman, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much for this opportunity. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.